Chapter Seventeen of Being a Boy by Charles Dudley Warner. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Mark Penfold. Chapter Seventeen, War. Every boy who is good for anything is a natural savage. The scientists who want to study the primitive man and have so much difficulty in finding one anywhere in this sophisticated age couldn't do better than to devote their attention to the common country boy. He has the primal vigorous instincts and impulses of the African savage without any of the vices inherited from a civilization long ago decayed or developed in an unrestrained barbaric society. You want to catch your boy young and study him before he has either virtues or vices in order to understand the primitive man. Every New England boy desires, or did desire a generation ago before children were born sophisticated with a large library and with the word culture written on their brows, to live by hunting, fishing, and war. The military instinct, which is the special mark of barbarism, is strong in him. It arises not alone from his love of fighting, for the boy is naturally as cowardly as the savage, but from his fondness for display the same that a corporal or a general feels in decking himself in tinsel and tawdry colors and strutting about in view of the female sex. Half the pleasure in going out to murder another man with a gun would be wanting if one did not wear feathers and gold lace and stripes on his pantaloons. The law also takes this view of it and will not permit men to shoot each other in plain clothes. And the world also makes some curious distinctions in the art of killing. To kill people with arrows is barbarous, to kill them with smooth bores and flintlock muskets is semi-civilized, to kill them with breech-loading rifles is civilized. That nation is the most civilized which has the appliances to kill the most of another nation in the shortest time. This is the result of six thousand years of constant civilization. By and by, when the nations cease to be boys, perhaps they will not want to kill each other at all. Some people think the world is very old but here is an evidence that it is very young, and in fact has scarcely yet begun to be a world. When the volcanoes have done spouting, and the earthquakes are quaked out, and you can tell what land is going to be solid and keep its level twenty-four hours, and the swamps are filled up, and the deltas of the great rivers, like the Mississippi and the Nile, become terra firma, and men stop killing their fellows in order to get their land and other property, then perhaps there will be a world that an angel wouldn't weep over. Now one half the world are employed in getting ready to kill the other half, some of them by marching about in uniform, and the others by hard work to earn money to pay taxes to buy uniforms and guns. John was not naturally very cruel, and it was probably the love of display quite as much as of fighting that led him into a military life, for he, in common with all his comrades, had other traits of the savage. One of them was the same passion for ornament that induces the African to wear anklets and bracelets of hide and of metal, and to decorate himself with tufts of hair and to tattoo his body. In John's day there was a rage at school among the boys for wearing bracelets woven of the hair of the little girls. Some of them were wonderful specimens of braiding and twist. These were not captured in war, but were sentimental tokens of friendship given by the young maidens themselves. John's own hair was kept so short, as became a warrior, that you couldn't have made a bracelet out of it or anything except a paintbrush. But the little girls were not under military law, and they willingly sacrificed their tresses to decorate the soldiers they esteemed. As the Indian is honored in proportion to the scalps he can display, at John's school the boy was held in highest respect who could show the most hair trophies on his wrist. 
john himself had a variety that would have pleased a mohawk fine and coarse and of all colors there were the flaxen the faded straw the glossy black the lustrous brown the dirty yellow the undecided auburn and the fiery red perhaps his pulse beat more quickly under the red hair of cynthia rudd than on account of all the other wristlets put together it was a sort of gold tried in the fire color to john and burned there with a steady flame now that cynthia had become a christian this band of hair seemed a more sacred if less glowing possession for all detached hair will fade in time and if he had known anything about saints he would have imagined that it was a part of the areole that always goes with a saint but i am bound to say that while john had a tender feeling for this red string his sentiment was not that of the man who becomes entangled in the meshes of a woman's hair and he valued rather the number than the quality of these elastic wristlets john burned with as real a military ardor as ever inflamed the breast of any slaughterer of his fellows he liked to read of war of encounters with the indians of any kind of wholesale killing in glittering uniform to the noise of the terribly exciting fife and drum which maddened the combatants and drowned the cries of the wounded in his future he saw himself a soldier with plume and sword and snug-fitting decorated clothes very different from his somewhat roomy trousers and country-cut roundabout made by aunt ellis the village tailoress who cut out clothes not according to the shape of the boy but to what he was expected to grow to going where glory awaited him in his observation of pictures it was the common soldier who was always falling and dying while the officer stood unharmed in the storm of bullets and waved his sword in a heroic attitude john determined to be an officer it is needless to say that he was an ardent member of the military company of his village he had risen from the grade of corporal to that of first lieutenant the captain was a boy whose father was captain of the grown militia company and consequently had inherited military aptness and knowledge the old captain was a flaming son of mars whose nose militia war general training and new england rum had painted with the color of glory and disaster he was one of the gallant old soldiers of the peaceful days of our country splendid in uniform a martinet in drill terrible in oaths a glorious object when he marched at the head of his company of flintlock muskets with the american banner full high advanced and the clamorous drum defying the world in this he fulfilled his duties of citizen faithfully teaching his uniformed companions how to march by the left leg and to get reeling drunk by sundown otherwise he didn't amount to much in the community his house was unpainted his fences were tumbled down his farm was a waste his wife wore an old gown to meeting to which the captain never went but he was a good trout fisher and there was no man in town who spent more time at the country store and made more shrewd observations upon the affairs of his neighbors although he had never been in an asylum any more than he had been in war he was almost as perfect a drunkard as he was soldier he hated the british whom he had never seen as much as he loved rum from which he was never separated the company which his son commanded wearing his father's belt and sword was about as effective as the old company and more orderly it contained from thirty to fifty boys according to the pressure of chores at home and it had its great days of parade and its autumn maneuvers like the general training it was an artillery company which gave every boy a chance to wear a sword and it possessed a small mounted cannon which was dragged about and limbered and unlimbered and fired to the imminent danger of everybody especially of the company 
in point of marching with all the legs going together and twisting itself up and untwisting breaking into single file for indian fighting and forming platoons turning a sharp corner and getting out of the way of a wagon circling the town pump frightening horses stopping short in front of the tavern with ranks dressed and eyes right and left it was the equal of any military organization i ever saw it could train better than the big company, and I think it did more good in keeping alive the spirit of patriotism and desire to fight. Its discipline was strict. If a boy left the ranks to jab a spectator or make faces at a window or go for a striped snake, he was hollered at no end. It was altogether a very serious business. There was no levity about the hot and hard marching, and as boys have no humor, nothing ludicrous occurred. John was very proud of his office and of his ability to keep the rear ranks closed up and ready to execute any maneuver when the captain hollered, which he did continually. He carried a real sword which his grandfather had worn in many a militia campaign on the village green, the rust upon which John fancied was Indian blood. He had various red and yellow insignia of military rank sewed upon different parts of his clothes, and though his cocked hat was of pasteboard, it was decorated with gilding and bright rosettes, and floated a red feather that made his heart beat with martial fury whenever he looked at it. The effect of this uniform upon the girls was not a matter of conjecture. I think they really cared nothing about it, but they pretended to think it fine, and they fed the poor boy's vanity, the weakness by which women govern the world. The exalted happiness of John in this military service, I dare say, was never equaled in any subsequent occupation. The display of the company in the village filled him with the loftiest heroism. There was nothing wanting but an enemy to fight, but this could only be had by half the company staining themselves with elderberry juice and going into the woods as Indians to fight the artillery from behind trees with bows and arrows, or to ambush it and tomahawk the gunners. This, however, was made to seem very like real war traditions of indian cruelty were still fresh in western massachusetts behind john's house in the orchard were some old slate tombstones sunken and leaning which recorded the names of captain moses rice and phineas arms who had been killed by indians in the last century while at work in the meadow by the river and who slept there in the hope of the glorious resurrection phineas arms martial name was long since dust and even the mortal part of the great captain moses rice had been absorbed in the soil and passed perhaps with the sap up into the old but still blooming apple trees it was a quiet place where they lay but they might have heard if here they could the loud continuous roar of the deerfield and the stirring of the long grass on that sunny slope there was a tradition that years ago an Indian, probably the last of his race, had been seen moving along the crest of the mountain and gazing down into the lovely valley which had been the favorite home of his tribe, upon the fields where he grew his corn and the sparkling stream whence he drew his fish. John used to fancy at times, as he sat there, that he could see that red specter gliding among the trees on the hill, and if the tombstone suggested to him the trump of judgment, he could not separate it from the war-whoop that had been the last sound in the ear of Phineas Arms. The Indian always preceded murder by the war-whoop, and this was an advantage that the artillery had in the fight with the elderberry Indians. It was warned in time. If there was no war-whoop, the killing didn't count. The artilleryman got up and killed the Indian. The Indian usually had the worst of it. He not only got killed by the regulars, but he got whipped by the home guard at night for staining himself and his clothes with the elderberry. 
but once a year the company had a superlative parade this was when the military company from the north part of the town joined the villagers in a general muster this was an infantry company and not to be compared with that of the village in point of evolutions there was a great and natural hatred between the north town boys and the centre i don't know why but no contiguous african tribes could be more hostile it was all right for one of either section to lick the other if he could or for half a dozen to lick one of the enemy if they caught him alone the notion of honor as of mercy comes into the boy only when he is pretty well grown to some neither ever comes and yet there was an artificial military courtesy something like that existing in the feudal age no doubt which put the meeting of these two rival and mutually detested companies on a high plane of behavior it was beautiful to see the seriousness of this lofty and studied condescension on both sides for the time everything was under martial law the village company being the senior its captain commanded the united battalion in the march and this put john temporarily into the position of captain with the right to march at the head and holler a responsibility which realized all his hopes of glory i suppose there has yet been discovered by man no gratification like that of marching at the head of a column in uniform on parade unless perhaps it is marching at their head when they are leaving a field of battle john experienced all the thrill of this conspicuous authority and i dare say that nothing in his later life has so exalted him in his own esteem certainly nothing has since happened that was so important as the events of that parade day seemed he satiated himself with all the delights of war end of chapter seventeen recording by mark penfold